You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. I am flying solo today with no co-host. This is a retrospective edition of Lighthearted, featuring interviews with two Canadian lighthouse keepers, Karen Zacharuk and Chris Mills. Both of these are re-edited interviews from the early days of the podcast. The interview with Chris Mills was recorded in July 2019, and the one with Karen Zacharuk was recorded in June 2020. I loved both of these conversations, so I've edited them slightly and combined them into this one episode. Each of them is about a half hour long. Let's start with Karen Zacharuk. The light station at Cape Beale is one of 27 stations that remains staffed on the coast of British Columbia on the west coast of Canada. The original 1874 wooden lighthouse at Cape Beale was replaced by a modern 32-foot skeletal tower in 1958. A resident keeper still maintains the navigation equipment and buildings, monitors the weather and sea conditions, and watches for emergency situations. For more than 15 years, the keeper has been Karen Zacharuk. Let's listen to my conversation with Karen now. Karen, you're an avid sailor, and uh, so I guess you've had a lot of maritime experience, but what exactly led you to become a lighthouse keeper? I've always enjoyed being part of the maritime community, and I, I did grow up in a small fishing village on the north end of Vancouver Island, and uh, so I was around water a lot, fishing with my dad and uh, living even in a logging camp out there with my dad for a while. But actually, when my husband and I, when we, we met in, in high school and uh, when we graduated, we bought a, a sailboat uh, right after graduation and we lived on, on the sailboat for seven years. And we sort of wanted a change in, in careers. And so we took a, a bridge watchman program, uh, which is we were planning on going to work on the Coast Guard ships. But when we applied at the Coast Guard base in Victoria, we, we sort of applied for everything. And relief light keeping came up first for myself and uh, lifeboat stations for my husband. And uh, so we sort of went with that. And um, I sort of always dreamed of living on an island with no cars. <laughs> when I first started doing relief light keeping, I just fell in love with it. And um, um, we had been living on the boat for seven, the sailboat for seven years. So I was sort of ready to start to move into a house and uh, kind of living sort of a simpler, simpler life. And uh, that's sort of how we started. And we've been doing it for now, both of us, for about 20 years. So my husband's with the lifeboats and I'm with uh, light, light stations. And yeah, it's uh, so that's how we sort of got into it. So Canada still maintains 27 staffed light stations in British Columbia, along with mm-hmm. uh, 23 in Newfoundland and Labrador and one in New Brunswick. And in this age of automation, when most lighthouses in the, the entire world have been de-staffed, why are some of the Canadian stations still staffed with resident keepers? Most of the Canada staff light stations are obviously in very remote areas of the coast. Uh, they're situate, situated in key locations along the coast where, you know, the, the, there's treacherous waters and bad weather conditions as well. Uh, and along the BC coast, there's actually only two that you can drive to. So the rest are either boat and helicopter or helicopter only access. And in most of these remote areas, uh, the lightkeepers are, are really the only eyes and ears looking out over our coast. 
So uh, the weather reports that the light keepers provide seven times a day or more, if uh, of course, if there's a special weather needed or a weather request are actually very vital to the mariners and aviators, uh, as well as assisting Environment Canada in, in forecasting weather. So light keepers provide a 24 hour service to the public. And they also, uh, we uh, provide 24 hours radio watch listening for dis distress calls and uh, we assist the marine traffic and communication services in relaying distress calls that may come from like radio dead zones or or mariners just using a handheld radio so there's a lot of areas there as well that you know there's there's incidents uh because of the treacherous waters and and uh you know the as the light keepers sort of the, the light stations being in these remote areas they're a lot of times they're safe havens for mariners and aviators where were you stationed as a keeper before you went to Cape Beale? So I was just northwest of Port Hardy, uh, 15 miles uh, at the north end of Vancouver Island. And I was at a station called Scarlet Point. Uh, I was there for five years before I came to Cape Beale. And, uh, and before that, I did relief light keeping for two or three years. So I was sort of situated. I would just go out for either you know, from anywhere from three days to three months, I would be at a, at a different light station sort of up and down the coast. So I've been to most of them, but uh, I always thought, uh, you know, if I ever got to be full-time light keeper, I would love to, uh, I fell in love with the, these two stations that I've been able to work at full-time. So it's been, I've been very lucky that way. Cape Beale it was a place that you actually chose to go to. You, you requested that. Well, it it came uh, available for a position, and uh, sort of the, the fellow that was actually working here before, he moved to the station that I was at. We sort of switched spots, and uh, and then I was working here as assistant keeper for um, I guess it was three years before the principal keeper that was here before me. He was here for thirty three years, so he retired, and then I I stepped up in, into his position as principal keeper since twenty ten here. How difficult is it to get to and from the station there? It's a three-minute helicopter ride from Banfield, which is, uh, Banfield is our nearest community, and it's 150 uh, people that live there, but Banfield is actually at the end of a 90-kilometer, very rough gravel road. So the nearest town that you can actually drive to on, you know, by a comfortable highway road is, is uh, Port Alberni. And so we're from Banfield, we're seven kilometers by hiking, and a lot of that is through the mud. Or uh, we're five uh, miles by boat, which depends on the seas. Uh, we're sort of the offshore swell where we have a sort of a lagoon where you can bring a boat into, but it's a very narrow gap that you can get through into the sandy lagoon. And so the seas have to be below about two and a half meters to be able to ride the wave into the lagoon. So you have to, you know, the offshore swell meeting the, the lagoon can be pretty treacherous there. So it's a it's a difficult place to get into. Or, of course, by helicopter from Victoria, which is about, I would say it's about a 40-minute flight from Victoria by helicopter. You personally, uh, how do you get in and out normally? Uh, usually by uh, well helicopter or or lifeboat Banfield lifeboat station in in uh, in Banfield they they can come and get me or uh, I have a I also have a personal boat but yeah and then I, I've I, and I have hiked out before as well when we couldn't get a helicopter or a boat in so um, I've hiked my myself out and uh, and went out that way it's a very muddy trail so yeah you have to be prepared to get wet and muddy. <laughs> right. You have an assistant keeper, is that correct? Yes. Yes, I do. 
him and his wife uh, work here as well. So um, it's uh, so when I when I take leave, uh, we can only take holidays when we uh, you know when we take vacation. We can only leave when we take vacation. So often when I leave, he can step into my position and uh, Lolly can step into his position because there's always has to be two people working at the station. So. And you mentioned your husband uh, works at a Coast Guard lifeboat station? Yeah, so he's the officer in charge in Banfield, at the Banfield lifeboat station at the moment. And uh, yeah, so he's he's on the uh, 47-foot self-riding uh, lifeboats, the same the U.S. Coast Guard has the same vessels as well. So that they run those out of uh, various spots on the coast here. And he's involved in search and rescue out of that station. That's, yeah, that's their primary job is the search and rescue. Are there also occasionally relief keepers who come to your station? You said there always have to be two people there. Uh, so do you sometimes mm-hmm. have relief keepers there at times? Yes, we do. Yeah. So there's, yeah, whenever myself or my assistant keeper want to take vacation, a relief keeper has to come in mm-hmm. to, uh, to relieve us. So, How do you normally get supplies or some of the supplies delivered maybe by helicopter or how, do, how does that work exactly? Our groceries uh, are delivered once a month with our mail and parcels uh, by helicopter. And so what we do is we place uh, an online order like you would in town uh, with a a grocery store and it's delivered to the Coast Guard base in Victoria. And then from there, it's flowing out uh, once a month uh, to the stations uh, all along the coast here. And then other supplies like, uh, you know, fuel for running the generators or gasoline or lumber, that all comes in by the Coast Guard boy tenders, and uh, they will bring a workboat uh, and uh, sometimes a fuel barge through our gap here into the lagoon to refuel us. Usually they refuel us every six months with uh, diesel and then bring supplies in as well, like uh, like I say, lumber or, you know, if we need a new wheelbarrow or paint or such thing, things like that, they'll bring that in. And uh, and then all of our water, of course, is collected off our roof into cisterns. So that's for drinking and, uh, and washing and, and such. So um, in the summertime, we do have to conserve uh, quite a bit if we haven't had a lot of rain. Anything other supplies like uh, just, yeah, the mail and parcels is usually brought in by helicopter. You just said a little bit about your water supply. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Uh, How exactly do you get your water supply? So just when it rains, that's when we get water. So it just comes off our roof and then we have cisterns. Uh, Most of the stations have cisterns in their basement. Uh, Half of the basement is converted into one, and mine's sort of a different one. Uh, We have it outside under an old uh, foundation that used to be an old duplex. so uh, we have that uh, a big cistern there and uh, usually stations have each house has about an 8,000 gallon cistern and then it, it goes through a sandbox and then through multiple filters and we uh, bleach test it every month and then it also gets tested by the Coast Guard uh, Health Canada as well to make sure it's safe, safe to drink and um, like I say in the summertime uh, we do have to conserve quite a bit like if we're doing our laundry we have to save the rinse water for the next wash you know it can get that bad or lots of the stations also have composting toilets in the house as well so that the water isn't wasted in the in the toilet cistern this year has been really well been doing well because we've had quite a bit of rainfall so yeah we're not in any issue right now Uh uh-huh that was i was about to ask if you do you normally get plenty of rain there 
Uh, we do, but there has been years, you know, uh, from sometimes from April to uh, July where we haven't had any rain at all, where it's been a really dry year, but uh, that's happened a, a few times. But uh, this year we've been lucky. It's been nice uh, not having to worry about that as much. I was thinking of asking you if you ever get lonely, but I, uh, I have a feeling I uh, kind of am anticipating your, your answer to that. First of all, it seems rare that you would ever be alone for any stretch of time, probably uh, not much at all. But let me, I'll go ahead and ask the question, do you ever get lonely there? <laughs> you know, that's a that's a quite a common question that I get, especially, uh, you know, from, from people coming on the station that either have never been on a light station or they're just curious about it. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm extremely happy here. And um, I think that makes a big difference. I'm, I, I don't actually get lonely because uh, I, I feel very connected to this coast and I feel connected to the, the villages along the coast. Um, you know, the, our Coast Guard and sort of Parks family, in a sense, uh, that come to visit. Uh, well, not right now because of COVID, but, you know, I, I, um, they, come, they come by quite often. Uh, um, I can talk to my family and, and friends as, as much as I want. And, and because I have, I'm lucky here to have good cell phone service. And, uh, and I get to see them period- periodically as well. But, uh, I, you know, I just, I guess I, I've been doing this for so long. It's sort of just become my life. And, and um, I, I, I'm, I'm just busy all the time, you know, uh, crafting or, or if I, when I'm not doing my, my main work, I'm, you know, in the evenings or whatever, I, I just like to pick up a new craft or, or learn a new craft. And, and uh, it just, you know, again, I get inspired being out here, just living amongst nature and, and um, I, I don't actually, I, I've, I've never really felt lonely at all. <laughs> what sort of crafts do you like to do? I'm just curious. Oh, everything. I, I, I just love to try. I mean, I I love knitting. Uh, I, I paint, um, woodwork, uh, um, cooking. I love cooking, um, sewing. Uh, right now I'm working on a, a, a marine canvas project right now and uh, just in this rainy weather when we can't be outside doing station work. So I'm filling my time quite often with different crafts. I, I don't have television, so I I uh, do, um, you know, I listen to the, the, the radio quite a bit. And, and uh, yeah, and cooking is a big passion, of course, too. So just being able to, you know, eat well and, and uh, enjoy that, uh, enjoy good food is important for me. Sounds great. Do you ever find yourself wishing you were closer to a, a, a town or a, maybe a, a more major town or a city or anything like that? Uh, no. <laughs> I'm really, you know, I like going out uh, to town once in a while, but I'm, I'm quite happy to get back to sort of the, the peace and quiet out here. Um, you know, we don't hear vehicles or, you know, the odd boat will go by or helicopter, we can hear them. But uh, it's it's very peaceful out here and and uh, sort of I've always grown up in a small area, so I uh, quite enjoy that. You make me think of Kate Walker, the famous lighthouse keeper in New York Harbor, Robin's Reef Lighthouse, who was lived within almost a stone's throw of New York City, but hated with a passion going into New York <laughs> City. <laughs> she much preferred life out at her lighthouse in the harbor. Sometimes when you, I haven't been out to town for maybe six months or so, 
it, it is a bit overwhelming going into into town and especially into a store. It's you know when there's so much choice, <laughs> it's uh it, I do find it overwhelming. So I just have to take a couple of days to get used to it, and then and then it's back to normal again. But uh, yeah, it's no, it is nice getting out to the city and seeing everything that's happening, the busyness and and just all you know the people watching and things like that. But I, I love coming back to where I live here. Uh, you mentioned eating right. I, I'm wondering uh, if you're able to grow a lot of your own vegetables and herbs, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So we have a big garden actually going right now. Um, I'm able to get, you know, I, I I can fertilize that with some seaweed that I get off the beach. And uh, we have a garden that we sometimes we can get, we have a greenhouse as well. So we can get vegetables growing throughout the year, like lettuce and green onions and, and parsley and uh, things like that. But um, no, it's that's a big part of being here is being able to have that fresh food because with our groceries, uh, usually by the third week into our grocery month, uh, we call the last week, we call it the scurvy week, especially in the winter, <laughs> because uh, we're out of all the fresh veggies and it is nice to be able to go down and, you know, sometimes kale will still be growing outside or celery outside, you know, even it can, it can handle the weather, but uh, um, it's pretty important to have uh, the fresh stuff like uh, is lettuce and things like that. You know, it only, if you go to the grocery store, it only lasts uh, maybe a week or like broccoli and uh, stuff like that. So we make a lot of like fermented vegetables, like uh, sauerkraut and kimchi and uh stuff like that just to keep uh things going through the winter and you sort of learn what what lasts longer and what you have to use up first and then also we get to um we can harvest uh, shellfish off the beach as well throughout the year most of the time if there's not psp and um so we can eat mussels and and gooseneck barnacles and urchins and things like that as well what kind of wildlife is uh, common around there and part two of that is have you had any encounters yourself with uh, dangerous animals there? Uh, yes. So we're in Pacific Rim National Park. So, uh, you know, there's there's quite a bit of wildlife here everywhere. Right now, there's about three gray, gray whales that are feeding just off our reef line. Uh, the humpbacks are, tend to be a little farther out at this time of year. Um, sea lions, you know, seals and things like that for marine mammals. And then we have resident bears that uh, live in our we have an estuary down in the lagoon so they're often there this morning when i went for a walk there was two of them down there feeding black bears and then uh, we have wolves i've uh, uh, i've seen tracks and we have a wildlife ca uh, parks canada wildlife uh, camera set up on the trail which uh, recorded wol wolves and i actually last year recorded uh, uh, a mother cougar and her two kits walking down the, the trail together <laughs> so there's wow. three of them that was a pretty incredible, yeah, uh, that was in pretty incredible footage. So we do have uh, cougars as well, but um, a few years ago, I think it's about six years ago now, my husband was stalked by a cougar here, and uh, it was actually just walked past the doorstep of my assistant keeper's house, and and uh, he called us to tell us that uh, the cougar just walked past his doorstep. It was actually after my cat, Cash, and uh, luckily Cash survived, but we went down to, to see where it might have gone to. And uh, my husband went down first because I had to go and do the weather report. But uh, I guess the cougar was near the helipad and uh, was crouched down and it was sort of wiggling its rear end like it was going to pounce. And then it uh, 
and then it laid down and it stayed there until we actually were, we had to shoot a bear banger off and, and scare it off. And uh, that was, it didn't seem to be too afraid of us. So that was a, that was a bit of a scary encounter. And, you know, growing up on the North Island, there, there's just, there's so many cougars up there. And all those years that I grew up there, I, I actually never, I've never seen one in real life until, until here. And uh, um, so it was, when we go out, we have to, carry what we call it's a cougar stick what my my grandfather actually <laughs> used to make them and it has sort of a spike on the end and then we, it has bear bells and bear spray and a double-edged knife and a bear banger and a whistle all attached to this one stick so that we're always prepared uh, for any encounters and then going down to do our weather report uh, there's been a small bear here ever since uh, my my dog hasn't been here anymore there's they've decided that they should take over this area. So uh, we have to haze them quite often when we go down to the weather, do the weather because they'll be eating grass near the Stevenson screen or the, the precipitation gauge. And uh, we have to scare them away to be able to just go and do our weather. So they roam around here very close. So we're just trying to keep them to make sure that they're they're afraid of us. And they they, they act in the, uh, you know, the right way. They, they run off usually when, when we uh, try to haze them. So it's it's good behavior. Yikes! <laughs> <laughs> it is scary because they're they're sort of more unpredictable wildlife, and uh, I'm sure that I've you know been watched many times walking up and down the, the old Banfield Trail, the old Telegraph Trail, the Banfield, but didn't know it. You know, they're just they're just there and around, and it can be frightening for sure. You mentioned your cat Cash a minute ago. And uh, you were nice enough to email me some pictures of Cash. And he, first of all, he's a twin uh, of our cat, Eddie. They are yes. classic tabby cats and they look so much alike, it's, it's scary. And it is. Uh, yeah, it's really funny. They look exactly alike. Although uh, Eddie's a house cat and I'm afraid he needs to go on a diet. He, he you know, Cash, Cash, I think is in better shape. He gets to run around outside and everything, but he's, it's hilarious. You uh, sent me pictures of Cash dressed up in different clothes. It, sound, it looks like he actually enjoys that. And you say he enjoys he greeting people and yes. uh, he's got, he's got a lot of personality. It looks like he really loves life at the light station there. We call him our site inspector. So when the helicopter lands and he's got his, his coast guard tie and, you know, epaulets on there, he, uh, his collar, he, he just struts up to the helicopter like he owns the place and he does the whole kitty customs and, and inspects everybody. And <laughs> yeah, he's quite, he's our station ambassador and, uh, and he greets all the hikers when they come in and anybody that comes on station, he's right there making sure that they're, they're all, you know, greeted. He needs to be the star of a children's book. We, we don't want to promise anything, but uh, I, I hope, I hope that happens. Uh, he needs, yeah. he, he needs his own well, book. Yeah, and uh, we could add uh, my assistant keeper, their cat Choppy. Uh, he's, yeah, uh, he's quite venturous cat too, and he's he's had to uh, had the hard lesson of learning the tides. You know, over the years here, going across the lagoon, and then the tide comes up, and him having to swim back. <laughs> you know, in a in a two foot chop, but but probably what would seem like a six foot moderate sea to him. You know, and uh, and in the winter time, <laughs> so he's uh, he's quite the adventurous cat too. Uh -huh. But they don't get along. They really don't like each other. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> so that's a, too bad, yeah. The Adventures of Cash and Choppy sounds like a great series of children's books to me. I'd like to talk just for a few minutes about rescues. I know it's a subject we could talk for more, more than a few minutes about, but there was a, a very dramatic rescue that happened at or close to uh, Cape Beale, close to the station in 1976. 
Yeah, so uh, that uh, there was a vessel, a, a sane boat actually called the Bruce One, and they had left Vancouver. They were actually going to go and uh, fish herring uh, in February. It was it, the incident actually happened on February 29th, 1976. So it was leap year. They got caught in bad weather, and their vessel ended up. Uh, the snow came in, and uh, they lost their visibility, and they ended up crashing into the rocks here, just below Cape Beal. Two of the fellows were rescued uh, by the lifeboat out of Banfield, and then the other fellow was able. He actually made it to the shoreline, but climbed up on the shore, and was of course hypothermic by that time. Um, they had sent. Uh, they could hear him yelling, but they couldn't get to him. So the U.S. Coast Guard actually sent a Sikorsky up from Port Angeles to assist in the rescue, and they spotted him on the rocks. They sent a basket stretcher down for him. He got in the stretcher and back up into the helicopter, and they were still searching for the other fellow that uh, actually ended up perishing. His name is Rusty Waters. And uh, while they were searching, I guess there was, a, you know, it was the weather was terrible. It was very low visibility. But apparently there was a bit of me mechanical failure with the Sikorsky, and it crashed right in front of the station uh, with all crew on board. The lifeboat was able to deploy a, a sort of a rubber uh, lifeboat, uh, like a rubber raft, and they were able to, the lightkeeper uh, was watching from above and was able to guide them through the reef line because there's a treacherous reef that goes all the way around uh, Cape Beal here, and that's the big reason why we're here, of course. So they deployed the life raft and or the, the lifeboat, rubber boat, and they went in and drove the boat right up into the doors of the helicopter. And it was pitch black because they had lost electricity and the power of the helicopter. And everybody was able to climb into the life or to, into the rubber boat and get back to the lifeboat and get on board. But uh, that fellow that was so that fellow was actually rescued twice because he was lifted up into the helicopter and then the helicopter crashed. And then he was lifted, you know, taken out of the helicopter. So everyone on the helicopter survived. And unfortunately, there was uh, one, the skipper of the, the Bruce one perished. But um, it was a it was a big uh, uh, rescue, you know, in the history books. So now the Coast Guard has actually has a hero class of vessels. And one of them is named the Martin Charles. And that's named after uh, the skipper that was at the lifeboat station for many years Um you know, it was named after uh, named after him for that incident. But so the we actually still have the wheel from the helicopter is still up by the tower here, and uh, hikers will often ask, you know, the question, well, where, where is that from? So I'm able to tell them the story of of that incident that happened, and uh, yeah, it was um, it was it was a big deal, that's for sure. Yeah, that's, that's an incredible sure. story. I'm wondering if you've personally been involved in any rescues around there. Or at any of the other stations so, you've worked also. Yeah, so just, you know, uh, relaying maydays, uh, that's, I've done that quite a few times. Um, assisting vessels in the fog, uh, towing in broken down vessels, uh, even injured hikers that come in. Just light tower and shoreline searches for missing vessels. Uh, in 2014, we had a big incident here, actually. I wasn't, I was sailing up in Alaska at the time, but the keepers that were relieving here, they were down at the engine room just checking the engines and they heard yelling from down there. And so they ran up to the top. There's 169 stairs from the engine room up to the top of the station. And they ran up to the top of the station and the fog had come in and they, they heard, uh, still they heard these people yelling and they looked out and there was an overturned vessel 
with three guys in the water. One of the fellows actually got stuck up in the bow when the vessel flipped, but he was able to make it out. He did injure himself quite a bit, but uh, they didn't get a mayday call off. Uh, the fog was extreme, you know, coming in extremely quick. And uh, so if, if the lightkeeper hadn't heard them, uh, they likely wouldn't have survived. So that the lightkeepers had called the, the Banfield Life, which came out in about 20 minutes and were able to rescue and, and save all three of them. There's a lot of current and, uh, and with the wind and, you know, it can, it can create pretty treacherous water. So there's a wave actually that the Hawaiian First Nations that uh, from this area, they call it the Chupmeek canoe eating sea monster <laughs> so that's what they call that wave and uh that wave has actually over the years uh, gotten a lot of people just uh, you know flip their vessels and that over and there was a, a canoe voyage that was going around uh, and the canoes both the canoes tipped over and they had about 15 people in each canoe and everybody was in the water but the, the lightkeeper spotted them and was able to call for help and they were all they were all rescued so it's uh it's pretty treacherous waters here and you know we're always keeping an eye out for for vessels and and that that are especially when they get a little too close to the reef line they're fishing for the, the bottom fish there and and uh, that wave will come up and you know it, you're not expecting it so it, it can be scary and of course uh, incidents like that are one of the the main reasons why there's still keepers at Cape Beale and some of the other stations you think about this the station's been here since 1874 so uh, Cape Beale is actually the oldest staffed station on on the coast, and uh, so there's always been somebody watching out for the past 146 years. So it's it's uh, you know it's these, the light stations are 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 very important uh, for um, you know assisting mariners and aviators. That's for sure. Those are sort of the only eyes and ears out here. And there was a, another really famous rescue there in 1906 involving Minnie Patterson, the wife of a, a keeper there. I'm wondering if you ever find yourself thinking about uh, Minnie Patterson. Uh, yeah, so Minnie Patterson, I, I do find myself thinking about her quite a bit. Um, she, we do. I, I usually hike the trail uh, that you know every morning just for some exercise. I hike up to the top of the hill and back, and that's the same trail that she used. The it's the old telegraph trail. But actually, there's still some of the telegraph wire is still on that trail, and uh, that she used to use. She used to go on to Banfield. And then, of course, she when she had to cross the lagoon to get to that trail, um, it was high tide, so she was soaking wet by the time she started the trail. And it was in December, and you know, <laughs> it's just a you know awful to start the trail when you're soaking wet already. But there's pictures of her I have in the weather room with her with her family, and and uh, yeah, she's uh, she's definitely she was honored in our Mar Victoria Maritime Museum. Uh, for her efforts that she did to, in 1906 there for both incidents with the Valencia and the Coloma. And uh, she's definitely part of history here and on this coast, that's for sure. Before we wrap things up, I, I want to ask you something that maybe this should have been the first question I asked you, but in the course of a, I don't know if there's such a thing as a typical day, but what are some of your duties that you might, uh, might happen on a, on a typical day at the light station? 
We actually get up at, uh, it's either 3.30 or 4.30 in the morning, depending on the time of year, uh, to do our first weather report. Uh, and then there's also, there's seven weather reports that we do a day uh, besides uh, if there's any special weathers involved in that and or re- weather requests. So that's our main part of our job is, is our, it's our weather, uh, weather collections, uh, local marine weather collections. And then, of course, we're, we're keeping watch uh, on the radio 24 hours a day when we... Uh, uh, when we're outside, we have a handheld radio that we're we're monitoring uh, all the time. And there, you know, there might be helicopters coming in or a ship uh, ship crew coming in to refuel us, or you know, work on some of our equipment. We have Highline and, and a Derrick equipment. From there, we start our day. You know, in the morning after breakfast, we'll maybe decide. Okay, if it's a nice day, we might do some painting. There's a lot of red and white painting here. Uh, there's we're cutting lawns. We're maintaining uh, the generator, doing oil changes, and then fuel filter changes on the on the Derrick engines. Um, we're doing electronics or uh, you know electrical work. Uh, you know, it could be we need to do some minor plumbing or carpentry work, grounds maintenance uh, from cutting our lawns, which takes pretty much all day because we have to do it by, you know, with a with a weed whacker. It's just too, too steep to be mowing most of it from cleaning the windows on the the cupola of the tower to uh, maintaining our fire pumps, uh, you know, all our safety equipment. There's just, uh, you know, we're cutting back trails uh, that we have around the station just to be able to go and have a a lookout for any sort of shoreline search that we have to do. Yeah, it's just uh, every day is is definitely not uh, the same. So uh, we're always, there's always lots, it's a big station. So there's lots of, uh, lots of things we have to do around here. I'm tired listening to you. Wow. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, and then we also we also collect uh, you know the temperatures twice a day for Environment Canada, and uh, the precipitation amounts, and uh, so we're doing you know, and then we also do uh, we help out with um, uh, the aquarium. So we we're we're recording any whale sightings that we see. Uh, we do beach bird survey for Bird Birds Canada. Uh, RCMP Coastal Watch program we're part of, uh, looking out for suspicious vessels. Um, yeah, just basically uh, keeping watch as a, you know, that's the main part of our job as well. So we're sort of just lots, lots of stuff to do here. That's for sure. I guess so. I have one final question for you for bonus points. Okay. Uh, what have you enjoyed most about your years as a lighthouse keeper? Oh, I would say just, uh, you know, being able, the opportunity to work in such a beautiful place, uh, being closely connected with nature and, you know, where the weather and the tides basically determine what you do for the day, <laughs> being part of a Coast Guard family, uh, in a sense, because we're always working closely with the, you know, the Coast Guard pilots and ships and lifeboats and uh, radio crew and the storm watching. Um, we've had, you know, the biggest seas I've ever seen were a few years ago, we had 63 foot surf on an 11 foot tide and, and I've seen water spouts, just, you know, beautiful sunsets. It's every day is different. So it, it's, uh, I, I like that, uh, the variability and, and just how, you know, everything's, everything's changing all the time and just living amongst nature. I, I, I enjoy that the most. Well, your love for it certainly comes through, uh, in, uh, the conversation we've had today. It's such a pleasure talking to you. It's really, really been a a rare pleasure. So Karen, Zacharik, thank you so much for spending this time with me today. I hope we can talk again someday. I would love to visit there. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to swing that, but 
uh, you know, ta- talking with you and hearing firsthand what it's what it's like being there is the next best thing to actually being there. So, again, thank you so much, Karen. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Jeremy. And uh, yeah, we'll be. I'm sure we'll be in in contact again. Before I introduce the next segment, I want to expand on something that was discussed in the interview with Karen Zacharuk. We talked about a famous 1906 rescue near Cape Beale, and I want to fill in a bit more about what happened. As daylight arrived on Cape Beale on December 6, 1906, the area was under assault by 80-knot gales and heavy seas. Keeper Tom Patterson spotted a crippled vessel offshore. The ship was the Bark Coloma out of San Francisco. The captain and crew of 10 clung desperately to the stunted remains of the mizzenmast as the ship was threatening to break apart. Keeper Patterson attempted to summon aid by telegraph, but the line had been severed by the storm. Six miles away, off Bamfield Creek, the lighthouse tender Quadra lay at anchor. The best hope was for Tom's wife, Minnie, to try to reach the Quadra, while Tom stayed on duty and waited to see if the Coloma struck the rocks. Minnie left in such a rush that she was wearing her husband's slippers and clothes that were not nearly suited for the harsh conditions she'd encounter. Minnie's first obstacle was the deep, frigid water that separated the light station from the mainland. She decided to not take a skiff and instead made her way through icy seas that reached to her waist. Knee-deep in mud during part of the journey, she fell numerous times in the face of hail and wind. When she arrived at Bamfield Creek, The rowboat Minnie expected to find was nowhere in sight. She continued to a home where Annie McKay, daughter of a former lightkeeper, joined her. The two women launched a skiff and reached the Quadra four long hours after Minnie Patterson had left the lighthouse. The men on the Coloma were soon taken aboard a longboat from the Quadra just as the bark was breaking apart. Minnie was the sudden focus of attention from many newspapers, and she received a gold medal and silver plate from the Canadian government. Okay, now let's move on to our second interview. Chris Mills is originally from Ontario, but he has lived most of his life in Nova Scotia. Chris landed his first three-week job as a relief assistant at the Cross Island Light Station near Lunenburg, Nova Scotia, at the age of 24. Between 1989 and 1997, Chris worked as a lightkeeper at 11 different light stations in three provinces on both the east and west coasts of Canada. Chris was a founding member of the Nova Scotia Lighthouse Preservation Society. For years, he's recorded the oral histories of lightkeepers and their families. Chris has authored two books, Vanishing Lights and Lighthouse Legacies, Stories of Nova Scotia's Lightkeeping Families. Chris lives in Ketch Harbor, Nova Scotia. He works for the Canadian Coast Guard as a deckhand on a lifeboat. He's also had a career as a radio DJ and news announcer, and he's also a carpenter. I've known Chris for more than 20 years. I've had the pleasure of co-narrating some lighthouse cruises with him out of Bar Harbor, Maine. And uh, we recorded the interview you're about to hear at the Days Inn in Bar Harbor back in July 2019. So let's listen to my conversation with Chris Mills now. I am here with my friend Chris Mills at the famous Days Inn recording studios in Bar Harbor, (laughs) Maine. Uh, Chris, uh, we first met, I would say, about 20 years ago. I think it was actually at a lighthouse conference in... Uh, in White Point, Nova Scotia. Very two, good. 2000, very good. the International Lighthouse Conference. I was actually out on Seal Island where I was a lightkeeper in Nova Scotia. Um, 
three days ago, and I still have two of the mugs from that conference <laughs> in 2000. Yeah, yeah, hard to believe. It's, uh, well, 19, 19 years ago. It's amazing. 19 years, yes, indeed. So it's a pleasure to be with you here tonight. And Thank uh, you. We might hear a little traffic noise out here tonight. The famous Days Inn recording studios are very close to uh, to the main road. Here. Famously they, poor insulation, sound uh, yes, insulation. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But again, I really appreciate you being with me here tonight. It's a real pleasure. And uh, I have admired your work for so long. It's great to get to talk to talk with you tonight. So thank you very much, thank Jeremy. You. I thank really, you. I really have. It's an honor. Yeah, it's an honor to be with you. So, uh, Chris, first of all, I understand you built your first lighthouse when you were six years old. What was that all about? Lighthouse in name, perhaps not in resemblance, but we had a summer cottage and still do, in fact, on Briar Island at the end of Digby Neck, which sticks out into the Bay of Fundy in Nova Scotia, southwest Nova Scotia. And uh, we got to know the lighthouse keeper at Western Light or Briar Island Light, which it's officially known as. And uh, I was fascinated with the lighthouse, fearfully fascinated with the foghorn, which was a diaphone, which was an extremely loud and deep sonorous thing that uh, really scared the the crap out of me. But I was so fascinated with the light, the sweep of the beam, and with the light keeper, I decided to pay homage to that by building a lighthouse out of pieces of basically driftwood, lobster traps, and so on. And so I did that in circa 1971. It was topped with a red trouble light. And uh, in fact, it exists to this day at our cottage, and the bulb has not yet burned out. (laughs) Which cool. is more than I can say for many lighthouses in Canada. Very true. <laughs> wow. Well, you knew what you were doing even then. Maybe uh, this is probably something that's a little hard to sum up in just a, a couple of words here, but uh, what led you to become a lighthouse keeper? So it's a lifelong interest, obviously, as I've, I've kind of just set the stage for it. And I believe my interest in lighthouses began in utero when my mother climbed <laughs> the steps of Cape Hatteras Lighthouse. And... Uh, I don't maybe a tenuous connection, but uh, it certainly certainly there was a seed planted, uh, and my interest came to, not to fruition, but started to show itself about the age of sixteen when I went to what was then known as Canada Manpower, an employment center in Halifax, and I went in and I said I would like to find a job as a lighthouse keeper, and the uh, the gal there said no, there are no light keepers anymore, which was half true. They were starting to automate and de-staff Canadian lighthouses starting in the early 70s, but there were still very many lighthouses to staff. But they, most of the positions were part-time positions. So flash forward to the age of 23, 24, and my friend Ian Duff, Scottish lightkeeper, mm-hmm. who I'd met, met him. Yes, you have indeed. You've been to Scotland, and I was living in Scotland and met him there. To make a long story short, he and some fellow lightkeepers had won a TV quiz show in Britain called Busman's Holiday which had brought them to Canada to visit, well, the busman visits bus stations and buses, the lightkeepers visit lighthouses. And we toured Cross Island Lighthouse on the south shore of Nova Scotia. I got to meet the keepers there, made a lovely visit. And uh, shortly after that visit, which was in November or late 1988, I learned of the need for a relief keeper for three weeks. And George Locke, the head lightkeeper, recommended my name to the Coast Guard base in Dartmouth, which was uh, the base that oversaw the lighthouses in that district. And lo and behold, in February of 1989, I was winging my way in a helicopter, an MBB-105 Bokau helicopter, Messerschmitt, to land on Cross Island. And I thought, three weeks as a lightkeeper, I have fulfilled my lifelong dream. I will be happy. I will never have to work as a lightkeeper again. And three weeks led to nine years on 11 lighthouses in three provinces on both coasts of Canada. Right. So there's the Reader's Digest version anyway. (laughs) 
Now, in your book, Vanishing Lights, you you talked uh, quite a bit about Cross Island uh, in the book. You described the island as teeming with all kinds of wildlife. Uh, also, you describe sort of a ghost town on the island. Well, I think I think the thing that, Jeremy, that really amazed me is I showed up in February, and of course the weather, I couldn't get out the first day I was supposed to go there because of, of bad weather. So they delayed it by a day or two. And when I landed there, there was a cessation in the snow. The helicopter left, and then the wind, a nor'easter, blew up and it was like being at the in the arctic with the swirling snow and the except there are no foghorns in the arctic and that was the next thing the foghorn <laughs> came on this raspy blast twice twice a minute blast and what really amazed me other than the the wind and the exposed southern point where this lighthouse was located and still is was that on the eastern side of the island with the northeast wind the surf would pile in and you've seen spume and spray on the shore and, and foam the foam reached the point where it was eight to 10 feet thick. And you could actually drive through these inlets or cuts in the eastern shore of this island in a tractor and be entirely covered in foam. Uh-huh. I'd never seen so much foam. So it was just a testament to the the uh, exposure of that island and how the surf was just pounding that shore. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it just amazed me. Wildlife, seabirds, of course, in the summertime, human wildlife in the summertime because the ghost settlement came alive in the summertime with summer boaters and parties, some of which I partook in. Um, but it was just a, it was a really neat experience because there had been a permanent settlement on the island until the 1920s. Right. And vestiges of that um, were still in evidence. And people came and inhabited former homes and, and current cottages. So you got a real sense of the community of the place and how important the lighthouse was to that community. You kept journals when you were on Cross Island, actually. Did. Uh, did you keep journals for the whole time you were lightkeeping? I did. I have 700 pages of journals at home <laughs> in, in six volumes. So, When I, are you going to publish all that? Uh, probably after I die. <laughs> okay. I'll come back and do that, or I'll have someone do that for me. Please I, I, do. It, w- it would be nice to draw from them, yeah, because those yeah. are the raw observations of every station I worked on. I absolutely love them. I really love your observations uh, of the weather, for one thing. I mean, there's so many uh, vivid uh, observations. Uh, if you could, uh, I'd love, uh, love it if you could do me a favor and read a paragraph I really like in Vanishing Lights describing the summer weather on Cross Island. I'm talking about one on page 53, and you've got the, the book right there. If you could read that passage, I would, I would yeah, absolutely. really like that. And as I read these words, I can actually, I can almost smell the air there, and I can see what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing. The lighthouse road is dry and dusty. Grasshoppers leave little explosions of gray in the shale as they jump. Although the heat of the day lingers throughout the afternoon on the northern end of the island, the air gets cooler as you get closer to the light station on the southern point. As you climb the final hills before reaching the open fields around the lighthouse, the wind begins to ruffle your hair. I had hair back then. And then, unbelievably, It is cold and windy, and the horn starts to blow. Through the heat of the day, a bank of fog has been lurking on the horizon, waiting to move in. And when it comes, it it does so with amazing speed. Almost immediately, the mood of the island changes. With the wisps of wet fog swirling in the light, the whole world reduces to the light station. Anything outside the lighthouse compound basically does not exist. When the fog lifts, maybe a few hours later, maybe a few weeks later, a larger world of trees, fields, water, distant islands, and the mainland once again becomes reality. Oh, not bad for a 24-year-old. Jeez. <laughs> I think it's fantastic. <laughs> I hear that, and I'm, I'm there, you know. That is, that is so great. 
And by the way, I had hair then too. So, <laughs> so don't feel that we're bad. We're in the same club. <laughs> don't feel bad about that. So you were at Cross Island right near the end before it was uh, de-staffed. I was the last person to spend a night okay. on the island, that's, on the light station after 159 years of staffed history there. That's about as close to the end as you can get. Pretty well. I think I felt that it was a pretty important time to be there. George Locke, the principal keeper, had left a little bit earlier. They had come that day to sling all of his belongings off of the helicopter. Thanks to a meddling assistant, relief assistant light keeper, um, the media had shown up. The Coast Guard didn't want media, but I kind of leaked the story to um, the local newspaper and CBC got wind of it. So I wasn't very popular with the powers that be, but I think it was very important to have that that occasion remembered after all that those years of more than a century of and a half of service to mariners and a way of life for George and all the keepers who came before him. So right. I was glad I'd, I'd gone against authority and done that. Mm-hmm. And it was very special for me to be, you know, first experience as a light keeper and my first light station to be the last person to spend a night at that station. So your next stop was Seal Island. Yes. Yarmouth. Yes. And you uh, had some history with Seal Island. You had childhood associations with Yeah, them. my dad is a bird watcher. Uh, he's still living. And uh, he and four other or five other bird watchers actually bought a house on the island for a handshake and a few hundred bucks like you could do back in the day to use as a bird watching base. So I first went there when I was somewhere between uh, six and seven years old. Actually, I just came back from there three days ago. Um, because I still maintain that house now that I'm the sort of the next generation. Mm-hmm. That led me to getting to know people on the island. There had been a light station established on the island in 1830, 1831. And uh, I found out there was a need for an assistant light keeper. And lo and behold, I had an interview and I was on my way in the fall of 1989 to spend six shifts as an assistant light keeper on Seal Island. I also pretty well helped close that one out. So I, I was a bit of a, it seems to me, a bad luck charm because every lighthouse I worked on ended up being de-staffed and I got moved on to the next one. But that's a bit of a joke because really I was like keeping at the end of the era of staff lighthouses in Eastern Canada, especially in the Maritimes. And so it was just natural that they were closing lights and I kept moving on. Seal Island is a pretty large island. A thousand acres. A thousand acres. 18 miles offshore. Yeah. It's just west of Clark's Harbor on Cape Sable Island, not to be confused with Sable Island, right. which is in the southwest or southwest uh, mm-hmm. corner of Nova Scotia. I like your descriptions in Vanishing Lights of uh, the light station as being very busy and noisy. Well, and the funny thing about Seal Island was that we had uh, two sets of generators. So we had our domestic generators, which were put in a building which was not designed to be soundproof uh, because it was a garage previously. And then we had three sets of generators that ran all the navigational equipment down on the shore. So you had this huge, roaring, growling, vibrating mass of generators in the shed up by the lighthouse. And then you had these droning little generators down below to keep the fog detector and the foghorn and the main light going. So it was an extremely noisy place, but it also gave it a, a feeling of vitality. Until 1987, there were families living on the island year-round, and then it became a rotational station. So when I was there, we were doing 28-day shifts. Mm-hmm. and But within a year, they had to, the Coast Guard had come and installed automation equipment and de-staffed the lighthouse in October of 19, uh, 1990. Yeah, so again, I was the bad luck charm. <laughs> Feel like a lighthouse killer? Yeah, a bit of a lighthouse Jonah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So next we had Machaya Seal Island. Machias Seal Island, the contested island, the Seabird Republic, located between the great state of Maine and the great province of New Brunswick, Canada. 
1990, flew from Yarmouth, Nova Scotia, across to Machias Seal Island, and I remember that first sight of that little crescent of islands, not really fully understanding just what seabirds mean to that island and how much they rule what happens out there, the puffins and the terns and the yes. razorbill ox and so on. But a lovely piece of turf and mowed lawn and this beautiful large DCB 36 lens flashing every three seconds from the tower and that was on 24-7 so I remember descending in the helicopter and seeing that revolving eye just the burst of brilliance of the light and yep. landing on this immaculately maintained station with the houses painted up and the lawns mowed and the maple leaf snapping in the breeze and occasionally a stars and stripes with American visitors coming <laughs> out uh, but it was yeah. again a very dynamic place and the noise there came from the birds, yes. the puffins, the ox, the, the, the Arctic terns, and it was overwhelming. Yes. It was cacophonous. Yes. And the other noise came from the foghorn. There were two 1,000-watt emitters, and I have to say this straight off the bat because I'd never come across this situation before, one pointing to the west, one pointing to the east. The house was to the east. So when the horn blew, it blew directly at the keeper's house. And the decibel level was somewhere in the range of 110 decibels in the living room of the house when the horn blew. And it was many years after that they moved the horn, after they realized that uh, occupational health and safety didn't have a, a great view of that amount of noise level in the house. So again, mm -hmm. uh, but that was just an occupational hazard of, of light keeping at the time. We didn't yeah. think much about it. You touched a little bit on the dispute between the U.S. and Canada over the the ownership of the, the which the is ongoing, owns. right? Uh, right, it is still ongoing. I, uh, the uh, of course the Norton family had a played a has played a big role in that. Barna and John Norton, yes, indeed. I I never met Barna Norton, but I did speak with him on the phone. I did uh, meet John Norton actually when uh, he took me on his boat to photograph some of the the area lighthouses one time. They have both passed away, correct? Since since then. But the, the dispute still goes on, but who, with them both gone, who, who is leading the, the charge for the, the, uh, the United States on that? I don't know if, the, if there's a charge being led, but it's just simmering on the diplomatic back burner, I think. And it's interesting to note that the Canadian Coast Guard has recently established uh, a 13-mile light on North Rock, which is just off the north tip of Machias Seal Island. Why we need a 13-mile light next to an 18- to 20-mile light on a major staff light station? I'm, I'm assuming it's for sovereignty purposes. And it's interesting to note that the Canadian Coast Guard lighthouse keepers on Machias Seal Island, who work 28-day shifts mm -hmm. until 1987, two families live there year-round, they are paid by Canada's Department of Foreign Affairs. They're not mm -hmm. paid by the Coast Guard. So this is a sovereignty issue, and that's why my country has maintained lightkeepers on that island past the due date of many staff lighthouses. Well, there are none left in the Maritimes. That is the last one. Right. And that is the only reason, Jeremy, as you well know, that that station is still staffed. No matter what side you come in on, pro-American, pro-Canadian, don't care, gray zone, doesn't matter. No matter what side you take, having lightkeepers there and having Canadian Wildlife Service people there has been a great boon to the island because it protects the breeding seabird colonies mm -hmm. and the seabirds that are, are there seasonally. Mm -hmm. So it's very important to have the lightkeepers there. Barna Norton often admitted that even though he said it was his island and raised the stars, old glory, whenever he could, admitted that the keepers were great there. And I think even John, gruff as he was, I think he agreed that it was good to have mm -hmm. a keepers there, whether they be Canadian or American. But that's one station we'll never see de-staffed. I'm, I'm not, a, not in our lifetimes. Did you get along well with the birds? Yes, yes, because we kept our distance from the birds. Huh. But turns were problematic because turns will dive bomb you. And we yes. actually had... 
hard hats with flags on them because they would actually draw blood. I was not unfortunate enough to have that happen to me, but it happened to many light keepers. And that's why we, they came up with the idea of the hard hats with the flags Mm -hmm. because they would dive bomb and hit a hard hat too, but at least the flag would let them, you know, they would avoid the flag. So occupational uh, hazard on Machia Seal Island. Yeah. I also spent Christmas there one year, which was an amazing experience. The, the noise yes. of the birds was replaced with the noise of the storms and the wind and the incessant incessant blowing of a foghorn on days where you had sea smoke or vapor, as they call it, uh, up that way, and snowstorms and three-foot snowdrifts that you had to shovel your way out of the basement of the house. And as soon as you shoveled it out, it would blow back in again because the wind was blowing northeast 40, 50, 60, or the beautiful calm nights in the winter or the summer even when you would just be settling down on the couch for a long winter or summer's nap and reading a book and the next thing that bloody horn would come on again mm-hmm. and in would go the earplugs and off you'd go to bed. Yeah. You talk about Christmas on uh, the island in Vanishing Lights. You it, talked about being sad at first, but then having a, actually a pretty great time. It was a pretty poignant memory because I remember being there with uh, Jim Smith, Jim or Reg Smith as he was known. And I remember his wife sending him greetings on CJLS, the radio station in Yarmouth, to Reg Smith out on, on Machias Seal Island. I remember tuning into BBC, uh, BBC Radio on my shortwave radio and listening to the Festival of Carols and Lessons from the uh, Chapel of uh, King's College in Cambridge. And I had a string of lights around my bedroom bedroom windows and a uh, nice big turkey dinner, just two two fellows on this tiny island between uh, the U.S. and Canada. So it's a pretty pretty poignant memory, yeah. Chris, I, I love your journal entry in Vanishing Lights uh, describing the foghorn on which I seal island. We've touched on the foghorn, yes, and its location on the uh, with relation to the keeper's house. When the foghorn is on, the noise level around here is horrific. It's tolerable in my east-facing bedroom, but almost painful anywhere in the living room and western bedrooms. A couple of years ago, someone from the Coast Guard brought a decibel meter to the island to measure the sound of the fog signal in the dwelling. In the living room, it recorded an impressive and painful level of 97 decibels. I find that if I sit in the easy chair by the front window, my right ear begins to ring (laughs) within an hour. The windows vibrate with each blast, adding to the nearly tenable sensation in my ears. The sound of a foghorn so close day by day is aggravating, to say nothing of the annoyance it causes while we chat or watch TV. Two three-second blasts every minute is extremely effective in obliterating all conversations, both on the TV and in the room. And of course, as many light keepers did for many years, you kind of instinctually knew when the horn was going to blast, so you would stop your conversation for those three seconds talk for three seconds, stop for three seconds, and then you had 51 seconds to catch up on what you were talking about. 97 decibels is louder than a motorcycle, by the way. I don't know what kind of a motorcycle we're talking about, but I just I just Googled 97 decibels, and a, a motorcycle <laughs> says 90 decibels of power more. It says 96 decibels, so... Well, I think I, I probably a Harley, you know. Uh, got to be a Harley. Yeah, yeah. but it was Harley it, it bouncing was loud. off brick buildings or something. And, and exactly reverberating. <laughs> and the thing was, the windows actually, mm-hmm. and this is twice a minute for three seconds at a time, day in day out. Sometimes for a total of what well, Machias would see up to twenty six hundred hours of thick weather a year. When you consider there's what seven thousand seven thousand hours in a year, give or take, twenty six hundred hours is a lot of horn time. Mm-hmm. A lot of horn time. Yes. Yeah, I would say so. Now your next uh, light station was Gannett Rock. 
Gannett I could see from Machias to the east of Machias, and it was one that I always wanted to get to because mm-hmm. it was a rock station. It sure is. And I don't mean rock and roll. Well, it did rock and roll. <laughs> yeah, it you could. know something about rock stations, but that was yeah. a true rock station. or so you As close it. as we get in, in Canada, pretty well, to right. a rock station. Established in 1831, and uh, basically barnacled onto the rock, if you can use that as a verb. Uh, a granite-based tower wooden tower, much of which still remains today, although it's abandoned. You've seen it. It's a sad sight. Yes. With a concrete house basically uh, stuck to the side of it and a large bunker, which was previously a fog alarm building. You could walk around the whole thing on the deck in 45 seconds, maybe. There was a small wharf and a helicopter pad, and that was it. And you were there for 28 days at a time, although keepers lived there year-round until the 1950s. One family upstairs, one family downstairs. Raised kids. My friend Kay Ingersoll, who just passed away this this year at the age of 90, learned to ride a bicycle on Gannett Rock. So it's the second oldest wooden lighthouse in Canada. Next to Head Harbor. Yes. That's which right. I was in today, as a matter of fact, and on Indeed Capitola you were. Island. Yeah. Gorgeous colonial construction, huge uh-huh. uh, hand-hewn beams. Um, and this one was interesting because the original Gannett Rock Lighthouse, which was a little bit shorter, it was heightened to circa 1906. The keepers and their families lived in the tower. Uh-huh. So there was still the remnants of plaster on the walls and where windows had been. So you really felt the age of the tower when you were walking up through the levels to the lantern. In Vanishing Lights, you called Gannett Rock a place out of time. That's a great description right there. Well, I still remember writing in my journal how I felt about the day I arrived there because it felt like, almost I felt like I was in a ship because you had the generators going, you had the smell of diesel, you had the smell of cooking, you had the smell of cigarettes because people were smoking at that time, and they all mingled to produce a really strong olfactory experience. Then you've got the sound of the surf, then you've got the foghorn kicking in, you've got the wind... You've got the waves, and you've got this big lens, big DCB-36 turning up top. And at night, all you can see is these big arms of light going every, I think it was every six seconds or seven and a half. I forget the, the characteristic. Uh, it was um, it was just an, almost an overwhelming experience. And yeah. to this day, I mean, I've got it tattooed on my arm. It was my, my favorite lighthouse, and I would go back there to be a light keeper in a flash, no pun intended. I had the memorable experience of being with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many years ago was that now? A few years ago now. Gosh, it was, I think it was 2015. Yeah, I was going to so say four, years four or ago. five years ago. Yeah. yeah, being with you on one of the uh, Bar Harbor Whale Watch uh, so-called Grand Slam cruises, which is why we're here right now. We're doing that Indeed. tomorrow, but we're not going to see Gannett Gan- Rock Unfortunately, tomorrow, which, no. Yeah, which it's is... a disappointment, yeah. It is, yeah. But we did go near it uh, in 2015, uh, and that was your first time seeing it in some years at that point. Since right? 1993. So it had been 22 or so years since yeah. I'd seen it. So it's kind of a bittersweet experience at that point. Yeah. It's funny. I've seen pictures of Gannett taken showing the deterioration and the, the fact that the house has been stripped inside and nothing is left. They had to strip it because there was no heat after we left in 1996. I hadn't seen it since 93. But it's funny. Even though it was it was bittersweet and quite emotional to see it. When I think of Gannett now, my mind still goes back to the time I was there. And that's what I see. I see it painted up inside. I see that big DCB 36. I hear the horn. I see the oil stove in the kitchen. I see the television in the living room going and the lighthouse radio and our weather reporting equipment and those beautiful stairs and the, the curved balustrades going up into the top of the light. And I, 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 I feel myself with my back against the walls of the tower in a 60-knot gale, feeling the tower give with the wind and move, and which is exactly what it was designed to do. 
because it was it, even though it had to be cabled down to hold it down with on each corner, it it was built to give. It was built to give, and that's how it survived there since 1831, and still survives even though now it's essentially derelict. It'll it'll it might outlast me yet. It's hard mm-hmm. to say. It's hard to say. It won't outlast government neglect, unfortunately. Though, right? Yeah. Right. To me, just the idea of visiting there, you know, for a, on a day trip would be just an unbelievable experience. But to spend several months there, as you did, is just. Well, it was two years ago today that I was back to Gannett Rock, and we we had yeah. all plans of landing on the island. Yeah, and that would have been the first time I would have set foot there since '93. And I, I left a t- I left a time capsule there underneath the lighthouse deck, and I wanted to see if it was still there. Unfortunately, there was too much swell, and we couldn't safely land. So I'm going back next month, and I hope to be able to land. Mm-hmm. And, but that, you know what? To be honest with you, if I don't, it won't kill me because it's going to be heartbreaking to see the mess it's in. How successful has Lighthouse Preservation in Atlantic Canada been to this point, would you say? Overall, not successful, but there are notable exceptions, which make the whole story better. So by averages, great, <laughs> good, good, but not by case-by-case basis. Yeah. Nova Scotia had the highest number of staff lighthouses. It had big stations, it had well-maintained stations, and they were basically laid waste to after destaffing. It was demolition by neglect, so it wasn't really active. But it didn't take long for those stations to, to fall into disrepair. And there was no effort made, no avenue provided for groups early on. The bulk of the destaffing was between, we'll say, the mid-1970s and 1989. There was no avenue for local groups to take over lighthouses until the end of that period. And by then, most of them were not worth saving. Mm-hmm. It was too much work to save them. But fortunately, there are some key sites such as Cape Forshoe in Yarmouth and Port Beckerton on the east uh, eastern shore and many other smaller lights that have been saved but the, but these are small lights you can drive to these big stations with big towers and lots of infrastructure lots of buildings unfortunately they they're gone and unlike Maine unlike uh, New Hampshire unlike Rhode Island uh, many other states uh, and the west coast of, of the United States uh, we haven't saved many of these remote sites you folks have. I think part of it is due to apathy. Part of it is due to um, an entrepreneurial attitude, which exists in, in perhaps in greater, in greater numbers in the United States. But we have a, a slightly larger country landmass-wise than you folks and a tenth of your population. So we don't have the people and the money to save these remote stations. Right, and you have Not almost as many lighthouses. Similar number, actually. We do. Yeah, that's right. So it's, um, it's very difficult for us to save every lighthouse. Having said that, and we won't talk in detail about the rest of the country, Quebec has done an amazing job saving beautiful big light stations, including lighthouses that still have diaphone foghorns, not operating, but in place with all their equipment. Uh, Fresnel lenses still in use, some which even get wound by hand and are still operating in that way during the daytime, wound by the students who staff these sites. Ontario has, has done a great job with some of their lights. And of course, British Columbia, 27 of their lighthouses are still staffed by resident keepers. And there are 21 in Newfoundland still staffed. So they're maintained extremely well. But to wrap up that question, there are some great success stories, but the not the failures, but the lack of successes outweigh the successes. Mm-hmm. But we have to concentrate on what has been saved. Yeah, That's the positive part. How optimistic would you say you are at this point about the future of uh, lighthouse preservation? I think the lighthouses which have been saved are are going to thrive and prosper, most of them. But here's an example. There's a there's Ile Rouge, Red Island, in, in the confluence of the Saguenay and the 
St. Lawrence River, Mm -hmm. which had been taken over by a group, and it's now going to have all of its buildings demolished except for the beautiful 1840-ish stone tower. Gorgeous, gorgeous French-style stone tower. That'll be left. Everything else will go. So we're still losing. We're still losing. However, nearby, Prince Chaux, Autre-Cif-Prince, has been restored, and it's a pillar light with no land under it, except the land that's on the bottom of the seabed. That's been restored. So it, it's, a, it's a juxtaposition of places that were saved and now aren't and places that are being saved. So that's kind of a roundabout way to answer your question, but I think we do have hope. But we, we have lost the lion's share of the important stations. The lion's share are gone. They exist only in memory and archival photographs and family photographs. Mm-hmm. Yep. Why should people care about these places? People should care on a number of levels because uh, our country, our respective countries were built uh, on safe navigation. It was extremely important. Lighthouses such as Sambro at the entrance to Halifax Harbor in Nova Scotia guided immigrant ships into Halifax, into the New World, from whence they went to the States and to Toronto and to Vancouver and wherever else in the rest of the country. So they've They've kept our mariners safe. They've guided new people to our countries. They're part of the very bedrock and foundation of our countries because in the, in the sense that, I mean, your, your, your first lighthouse, of course, predates your union as, a, as a, your independence, and, and so does ours, uh, Lewisburg, 1733-34. But they really laid the foundation for the, the settlement and the growth and development of our countries. And they're just neat places to see. They're gorgeous. It doesn't matter why you enjoy a lighthouse. If you like the scenery, if your father was a lightkeeper, if your cousin was a lightkeeper, if you just like the place, if, if something special happened, if you got married at a lighthouse, if your husband proposed to you or vice versa, they're special places on many levels. And as such, they're iconic. I know that's an overused word, but they've got, they've got to be saved as many as we can. Abs- they remind us of what we are, where we came from, and who we are now. Thank you so much, Chris Mills. Thank you, Jeremy. Better than that. It's been a pleasure. Thank (laughs) you so much. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed listening to these conversations again. I sure have. Chris and Karen have such a great ability to bring these places to life for those of us who may never get the chance to visit them. The book Vanishing Lights by Chris Mills is available from Amazon and other online booksellers. I recommend it very highly. His excellent book Lighthouse Legacies, Stories of Nova Scotia's Lightkeeping Families is also available. I want to remind everyone to check out uslhs.org to learn more about all the things the U.S. Lighthouse Society offers, from preservation grants to the passport program to domestic and international lighthouse tours. I also want to remind our listeners about the U.S. Lighthouse Society's National Lighthouse Day Dance Contest, which is ongoing. On the front page of the website at uslhs.org, look under What's New near the middle of the page. Click where it says National Lighthouse Day Dance Contest to get all the details. The deadline for video submissions is August 14th, so you still have a couple of weeks. There will be cash prizes, but the most important thing is that we're trying to foster togetherness among lighthouse organizations and everyone who loves lighthouses and to celebrate what lighthouses mean to all of us. If you have any questions about the dance contest, please shoot me an email at jeremy at uslhs.org. We will be back next week with a brand new episode. For now, thanks so much for listening and keep a good light. Keep a good light.